And that makes it really, really difficult to change one's thinking. Um, if you change your preconceptions, that makes you different. And that leads you to become an outcast. You're socially ostracized from your group. And that leads to what? A loss of status and also a loss of opportunities. So that means that change amongst a few individuals in a management team is unlikely. Doesn't mean it's impossible. It just means it's unlikely. And, uh, and, and you know, we see the truth of this borne out, uh, uh, um, you know, in front of our eyes empirically uh, in, in the, the lack of desire for leaders to accept or understand or want to adopt a progressive management. It's time for Scraping Toasts again, a show about organizational effectiveness, great thinkers whose wisdoms we struggle to apply, why things are the way they are, and what you might do about that. I'm Jussi Makella from scrapingtoasts.com, and on this show today I meet up with an expert on progressive management systems to talk about why management innovation simply doesn't exist and why the classical management has been so successful in resisting any kind of change for such a long time. This topic is such a difficult one to discuss at all without coming across as an arrogant know-it-all who's just out there to criticize people with challenging jobs who often carry tons of responsibility on their shoulders. It is, however, a topic that needs attention and most of all, thoughtful and actionable ways to bring about progress for the sake of you, me, our organizations and our societies, as you'll soon hear why. My guest does an excellent job of presenting the facts and logic of what's going on under the hood of the institution called management. I hope you find this as interesting as I did. Let's get started then. Uh, my guest today is a management historian, engineer, researcher, author, teacher, and an executive coach. Uh, he's done a long stint in industry in various management positions within engineering and uh, operations, uh, after which he went into academia and education, uh, currently working as a professor at the School of Engineering, Science and Technology of Connecticut State University. Always gets me that word. Um, a bit of a Swiss army knife in, in many ways, um, to say the least. So, uh, Dr. Bob Emiliani, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you very much. I'm very happy to be with you, UC. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, yeah, thank you yourself for taking the time. It's uh, certainly it's exciting for me to, to get a chance to spend a few minutes with you and uh, try and dig into your brain and see what's going on there. Um, so uh, tell me, before we get into the um, topic of the day, uh, when I went through your bio, uh, it wasn't very difficult to see uh, uh, that uh, here we have a human being with a considerable breadth when it comes to interests, skills and talents. So musician, artist, author, teacher, professor, industry professional, coach, there's a, there's a whole lot of stuff in uh, that you carry in your uh, bag. So uh, yeah. if you yourself look would look at back, look back at your uh, life so far so do you see a common thread there somewhere and uh, if you do what could that be 
Um, I think it's just the, maybe a, the, a restlessness <laughs> <laughs> and, an, and an interest to uh, do a lot of um, different things, to engage in different kinds of interests and activities, um, some of which, you know, to stay busy, you know, all of which to l- learn new things along the way, um, you know, have some fun, experience different things. Uh, just, I think, fundamentally, it's a curiosity mm. about all, all that there is out there and to try and sample as much of it as I can. <laughs> yeah, there's a limited time we have for that. So, yeah, indeed. Uh, I, I agree with that. <clears throat> So uh, one of the main reasons I wanted to talk to you um, was the uh, book trilogy uh, you've authored on uh, management uh, and uh, lean. Mm. Um, you, you have authored uh, a whole bunch of books, but um, specifically these three books um, uh, mm-hmm. most recently uh, caught my interest. Um, you are an uh, expert uh, in lean management and uh, professor holding courses on, on these sort of kinds of topics, uh, mm-hmm. leadership and management and that sort of thing. Um, so obviously there's something that um, tells me you care about these things a great deal. So uh, how did you end up spending so much time uh, studying this topic uh, so yeah. extensively? Well, um you know, there's the baseline curiosity, you know, to mm. understand things. And then, of course, Toyota's management practices and that way of thinking are so extensive and, and so deep. Uh, and, mm. and so there's so much substance there to understand. And um, I had experienced the typical kind of management and other companies that I had worked for. So when I first uh, became in contact with uh, the um, Kaizen consultants, and they were teaching us Toyota's management system. It was just so different than anything else that I experienced. And so, um, so I wanted to really dive into the details to understand TPS mm. and the Toyota way, and also how uh, Lean was uh, different, you know, the ways in which um, Lean differs from uh, TPS and the Toyota way. Mm. Uh, the other thing I was driven to do was, I mean, I found this all very fascinating. I got started with this in 1994, and I quickly sort of gravitated to the area of leadership. I'm, I, I'm not a shop floor, you know, TPS or lean guy. I was trained in that, and I understand that not, you know, fully because, you know, there's a, <laughs> it never ends. But um, uh, the thing that intrigued me the most was the leadership aspect and how do you lead an organization in a way that that is uh, similar to um, uh, Toyota. And I wanted to, uh, in, in exploring this topic, uh, learn a lot about it, but of course, write about it. And, and the writing was essentially to share with others what I have learned. And I set, I, I set as kind of a mission of mine to put everything that I know in writing so that it's just, it's all there for mm. the future, for anybody who's interested, just take everything I know and put it in these books and research papers and so on. Mm. Mm. Um, I don't know if you if you remember this, but um, is there anything specific that comes to your mind when when you first encountered this uh, Kaizen uh, um, uh, promoters that that immediately sort of caught your interest? Well, yeah, I mean, there's two things really that stood out. One was um, they, they were we had people in our company that were you know brilliant. 
manufacturing engineers, brilliant people on the shop floor, hmm. um, brilliant uh, managers. But it turns out we were doing things in the worst possible way. <laughs> and you're wondering, how come if everybody's so brilliant and they have these degrees from these schools or, or they have this fabulous work experience working on the shop floor for 30 years, why are we doing things in the worst way possible? And then in Kaizen, in a, you know, a week's worth of Kaizen um, or less, we were, um, uh, you know, our problems were solved. We didn't have uh, overdue parts anymore. We, we, our costs went down, our quality went up, our lead time went down. It was less struggle for the, uh, the workers to make the parts, less struggle for the manufacturing engineer. And so it was, it was just amazing to see that. And then the other thing that was amazing to see is just how the other, my peer managers responded and reacted to this. And some were taking what they learned and leading in a different way. And others were just continuing to lead in the same way as they had always led, which was not a particularly good way. Mm. So those two things stood out to me uh, tremendously, that some managers were learning and improving, and other managers were uh, learning and not improving. I guess you could say not learning either. (laughs) (laughs) Not learning and not improving. Yeah, yeah. I think I think there's a saying: uh, uh, "It's only after behavior has changed the learning has happened," or something along those lines. So obviously, yeah. that didn't take place there. Yeah, and there was also wasn't the curiosity there mm. too. You know, I think that's a problem as well. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So mm. we'll talk more about that later. Yeah. Hopefully. Yeah. Um, so I think it's probably a good thing to sort of define these things we're about to talk first. So the the things you talk about in, in these, this trilogy uh, mostly concentrates on, on, on classical management and progressive management and, and lean in particular. Uh, mm-hmm. So could you uh, define what do you mean by these things and, and uh, then why is this a problem? Why, why does uh, classical management need to go? Sure. Uh, so I, when I use the phrase classical management, that refers to the old way of doing things or traditional way of doing things or the, just a common way of, of, of leading and managing organizations that you see out there. And the common way of leading and managing is um, when it comes to leadership in particular, it's a type of leadership that blames people for problems. It doesn't value people or their ideas tends to view people as nothing more than labor to eventually eliminate through automation, artificial intelligence, some kind of machinery or software or something. It sees customers, uh, despite all the talk about focus on customers, it actually sees them as nothing more than just a source of income. (laughs) Um, Suppliers, who are they? Well, they're the enemy. There's somebody to bargain with to get the lowest price. Uh, And there's, you know, of course, in in U.S. style uh, uh, business, just kind of an indifference to community welfare, whether the community is uh, uh, prosperous or whether it's impoverished, whether the company stays in the community or goes, you know, closes up, moves uh, the work overseas to somewhere else, it just doesn't seem to matter. Hmm. Um, Progressive management um, in modern times would be, uh, you know, something different than classical management, something more forward thinking, something that reflects the need to do something different given that the times are different. And so um, progressive management, its modern origin begins with scientific management in the late 1800s and early 1900s. And then the people at Toyota pick up on the work of Frederick Winslow Taylor and his cadre of people. It's not just Taylor alone, 
There's a lot of others who did great things, and especially and including uh, Dr. Lillian Gilbreth, who um, was influential to Toyota in terms of her book, The Psychology of Management. Mm -hmm. And so, so basically, we have the the, uh, the progression of progressive management, of scientific management, TPS in the Toyota way, and then the westernized derivative, which we call a lean management, not being exactly the same thing as TPS in the Toyota way, because there's problems in translation, you know, and so on. <laughs> but anyway, classical management, and the problem with that is it's 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 informed by thinking from the late Middle Ages, and some aspects like blaming people go way back because you can imagine a King Tut when something didn't work out, uh, probably didn't say, oh, that's my fault. Don't worry about it. King Tut probably said, it's your fault and, you know, banish you to wherever, <laughs> chop your head off or something like that. So some of this thinking, you know, goes way back prior to the late Middle Ages. But, you know, starting around the uh, then and the 18th and 19th century uh, economics, um, this stuff comes together and r remains very present in the understanding of classical management and it's basically outdated given the needs of people on the planet in the 21st century in fact if um you know you look at the history of the progression of this some of this has to do with the types of markets you serve and toyota recognized that it's a competitive buyer's market out there so they developed the management system to deal with a competitive buyer's market but in previous decades it was mostly a seller's market which is where classical management would fit better. Um, so the transition to being more widespread of buyer's markets globally was really in the post-World War II period. And so the transition to a progressive management practice should have started to take hold then. Um, but that hasn't, um, you know, it's, 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 it's more realistic of the marketplace you're serving. It's better for the people on the planet mm. and so forth, but it has really uh, yet to take hold. It's, here and there, we see some companies doing well with lean or TPS or whatever, some form of progressive management. But essentially, today, what we have is widespread continuation of classical management, which is now being augmented by, of course, digitization, artificial intelligence, you know, all these new technologies. Mm -hmm. um, to me, that sounds like the, the big difference between these two yeah, systems is the well, maybe two things. Um, the word humane uh, instantly comes to mind when, when you talk about the um, uh, progressive management. Um, and the other one is there's a, uh, from the classical management perspective, it, it seems like the whole universe revolves around that system and, and that single organization and all the others are just like out there trying to get you whilst the progressive systems see it the completely other way and, and try and expand their the, the system to sort of embrace the larger system they are part of is is that correct do you think yeah well it's classical management being pervasive it's kind of like in physics you know a ball in motion tends to stay in motion so <laughs> classical management has long been in motion and tends to uh, uh to stay in motion and so it's mm. just uh it's pervasive in everybody's thinking and how we do things and how you know and uh it's it penetrates us individually and from mm. a societal perspective and uh it's hard to fathom doing something differently mm. and one of the 
one of the problems is is there's some success associated with classical management you know quite a bit of success you can you can say a lot of positive things about it in terms of bringing uh, the world out of poverty you know and uh, there's mm -hmm. just strong moral arguments you can make for classical management but there's also strong moral arguments you can make for a progressive management in terms of its uh, it's it being better for people on the planet uh, in terms of just having a less uh, externalities associated with it. Um, the, the, the difficulty is classical management looks to be, you know, moving forward because it's kind of like the perspective is because we've had past success with this, it's obvious mm. that there will be future success with this. And, uh, you know, it's not clear that that's uh, the correct way to think about this. The future has many challenges uh, that humanity faces, the planet faces, and so on. And the prevailing mindset, of course, is that you know just technology will take care of all of our problems, and it, and mm -hmm. it won't. We have we have social problems. Uh, people are you know dissatisfied with work, their the leadership, and so forth. They're dissatisfied with their pay and advancement, and you know many different things. The, the prices in the food stores and so forth, uh, lots of different things are problematic. And uh, progressive um, leadership and progressive management practice surely are part of the solution because they address social needs. That technology alone is, is not going to do. So we have to think um, you know, bigger and more broadly. I think part of the difficulty is, is when we have these kinds of sort of spasms, you know, inflation is, is high and prices have gone up quickly mm. and so forth. There tends to not, there's a question of whether or not that these problems really stick in our minds enough to actually result in some kind of change or do we forget about it in a, you know, six months and move on and worry about other things. Mm. Um, but, but clearly in my mind that, uh, Classical management has outlived its usefulness. It's been around for some 350 years, depending on where you start the clock. Uh, it's had a it's had a good run. It's had a run that's been, uh, you know, I mean, better than anyone could have imagined. If you're, especially if you're one of the principal beneficiaries. <laughs> uh, but but it's time to uh, it's time to recognize that uh, there needs to be either you know substantial changes to classical management or just start to transition mm -hmm. to progressive management. So if, if we dig into the um, book trilogy I've been mentioning here uh, a few times, so uh, the first book, The Triumph of Classical Management, uh, then the second book, Irrational Institutions, and the third book, Management Mysterium, they all study the failure of progressive management methods uh, getting any real foothold um, or seen from the other side, the, the success of, of uh, classical management being rejecting uh, the progressive uh, management systems. The triumph of classical management takes a very, very critical <laughs> look at the institutions of uh, management and, and leadership, mostly from yeah. a uh, uh, materialist perspective whilst the irrational institutions uh, analyzes the role uh, of our thinking our rationality or, or lack thereof what role uh, that plays in in resisting any change and and how maybe surprisingly how or aesthetics is that the way you say it yeah um, aesthetics yeah uh, 
how those two are a major factor uh, in, in the management decision making. And then lastly, uh, certainly not least, the, um, the book Management Mysterium takes the sort of, yeah, as the name hints, uh, like uh, this mental perspective of leading uh, yeah. or managing organizations. Um, can you walk us through the story of, of how you came to write these books and, and, and the very distinctive pers yeah. or distinct perspectives? So, sure. So from between 1994 and about 2007, I was doing a lot of my research and writing about, you know, what is a lean leader? How do you, how do you become a lean leader? Uh, what is lean management? How do you become successful at this? But a lot of focus on the leadership aspect. Mm. But of course, it was apparent even by the late 90s that most organizations were having great difficulty with lean. They weren't, you know, making the transition from classical management over to a, a progressive lean management with TPS, no toy it away. So it was clear they were struggling. But around 2007, I started to turn my attention also to understanding what, why this is uh, a problem and why why aren't why aren't leaders uh, embracing this and so on. And so I did a lot of writing and then showed up in the Real Lean series of books and elsewhere and so forth. But none of that was really uh, satisfactory to me in terms of um, understanding what's really going on here. So again, continuing with the idea of curiosity, mm. I, I wrote the books because you know I, I and so many others were, were frustrated that leaders just seemed to care about progressive management only to the extent that people on the shop floor would use various lean tools, you know, but they themselves at the top didn't want to think any differently or do anything differently. And so I wanted to know why, but in greater detail than I had written previously, and certainly much greater detail than what most people write about. And, you know, they typically write about, oh, leaders fear change, you know, sort of high level uh, you know, top level stuff. They don't dig down into asking why, you know, 20 or 30 times to really get down to what's going on. So this problem of why leaders are indifferent or reject or ignore progressive management has been around since the days of scientific management. Way back then, Frederick Taylor and his crowd of people had difficulties also with uh, leaders taking an interest in this as a replacement of classical management system with scientific management. So I wrote these books to answer the questions, questions essentially of why do leaders resist, reject, or ignore progressive management? And that, I mean, most of them, something like 99.89%, something like that. I mean, it's, it's a huge number. Mm -hmm. So, um, so anyway, so I proceeded to do research starting around 2015 that became much more fruitful in terms of really getting into the details here. And then that resulted in Triumph of Classical Management being pub you know, published in 2018 and the other two books in, I think, 2019 or whatever. Um, and, and in writing Triumph of Classical Management, there, there was these other aspects that I wanted to touch upon but didn't fit well in Triumph of Classical Management that needed to be discussed because they were important aspects of, of why leaders you know, resist or ignore or reject progressive management. And that was looking at, you know, rationality and irrationality, and in particular aesthetics, and making the point that things have to look a certain way in order to be acceptable. And if they don't look that way, it's not acceptable. And that's an uh, was a very, you know, and I think most people who read Irrational Institutions 
really home in on that aesthetic aspect mm. of you know things got to look a certain way and and with with lean or tps they don't look the right way <laughs> i think the you know the the metrics are different the you know the charts are different things don't look the right way and so therefore that's partly why it gets rejected and then there's this intangible spirituality and superstitions mm. that are part of understanding why leaders remain committed to classical management and why they reject uh, progressive management and you know we're, we're human beings and and just sort of the mystical and superstitious uh to varying degrees we all have um uh, this is part of our our makeup um uh, you know there, there are rituals that we might do before we exercise uh, certainly in sports you see uh, players do their certain rituals and <laughs> wear certain types of clothing or whatever as part of their superstitions and the same thing exists in uh, uh you know among leaders so i wanted to explore that and in writing this trilogy i i i think it provides a very you know it's a very comprehensive picture on what's going on and answering this 120 year old question of why leaders you know resist reject ignore progressive management hmm. and that was really problem number one to solve problem number two which i guess we'll talk about more as we go but is okay now that we understand now that problem one is finally solved problem two is how do you get more leaders to embrace you know based upon the findings of problem one how do you get <clears throat> leaders to embrace progressive management, given that classical management is, you know, it's archaic, it's, it's past its due date, it's expired, it's time to move on. <laughs> so um, how would you say your work has been received? And uh, have you been surprised by any of that reception? Yeah. Well, let me first say that the books, I, I wrote them in a dispassionate you know, non-blaming and non-judgmental right. way. I just tried to lay out the facts, you yeah. know, and I didn't put my value-based judgments within that. And I also didn't provide a lot of uh, solutions for people because, and we can talk more about that later, but there's other ideas that have to come into play here. But hmm. anyway, the books have been really well received by lean practitioners, you know, I, and I, and in, within that realm, it's widely acknowledged of answering the question that it set out the answer of why leaders resist, reject, and ignore progressive hmm. management. But it has been completely ignored by the top 20 global lean influencers who have made top 20, 25, top 15, whoever these people are, they've completely ignored it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I've had no conversations with any of them about this. I don't have any idea if they've read these books. Um, you know, I don't I don't know why, um, you know, there seems to be a, a lack of interest amongst those people, because in solving problem number one, it points to solutions for problem number two to advance, you know, to mm. expand the adoption of progressive management. And these uh, top 20 lean influencers, um, based upon what I see of them on their websites and posts here and there in social media and so forth, seem very much locked into the thinking of classical management in terms of how they're um, trying to advance a lean management. So I would say that much, you know, much like the, um, the the leaders who resist and reject and ignore progressive management because for some reason it's beneficial to them, they don't have to think of anything different, they don't have to do anything different, and so forth. Uh, the lean uh, promoters resist, reject, or ignore these books presumably because it's somehow beneficial to them. And and I have no way of knowing if that's true because they never talk to me, but that could be a reason. 
Mm. Uh, I, it's likely there are other reasons, um, mm. some irrational, some mysterious. <laughs> uh, I, I know that in the past I've gotten a feedback from people that we don't like the tone of your work. And of yeah. course, when you're criticizing me based on tone, it shows that they have no argument based on fact. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, they have nothing. They, they have nothing. They have an empty, empty ammunition. Nothing. Yeah. And so, if you're going to, you know, criticize me on tone, I mean, it's not. There's no even. There's not even an argument here. Just don't, you know. Mm. So, um, so that seems to be the best that they can do. They don't like my tone. Mm. They don't like me um, speaking truth to power. Um, you know, so things like that. But, it, you know, it's incredible the the amount of the body of work that I've done. There, there has to be, you know, errors there, mistakes and so forth, right? I mean, there has to. There's just too much mm -hmm. of it. And I have never had anybody, and this is amazing, I've never had anybody challenge me on the facts mm. that I've put forward. And, you know, so there's one of two things that I have, I am one of the rare persons in the six billion in the world here who's never wrong, which is not possible, um, or... Or they, um, you know, they're not doing the work necessary to argue their, you know, their point and mm. uh, to tell me, you know, where I'm wrong. And so they're they're not participating in the process of advancing knowledge. I'll tell you that just by, um, you know, saying they don't like my tone or they don't like my, you know, that I'm speaking the truth or truth to power or whatever. Um, so they're not they're, they're they're doing a disservice to you know mm. the advancement of progressive management by not engaging. To advance the um, the the science and understanding of uh, progressive management. Mm. All right. Um, um, in in this analysis that um, you've made, you clearly point out that the uh, the people on the shop floor, so to say, uh, or the workers, um, they are far more open to adopting these new uh, management systems and ideas that are based on a really different kind of thinking um, and uh, I would assume this is sort of the one of these examples of uh, uh, Deming's system of profound knowledge and and this countering force that you call the system of profound privilege uh, sort of clashing uh, can you walk us through what, what these things are and especially this uh, system of profound privilege what do you mean by that sure so we, we uh, you know, people may know the term the Great Resignation. So certainly here in the United States, there's millions mm. of people leaving their jobs and looking for something better. So it's the latest of many strong signals that millions of people do not like how organizations are led and managed. And the Gallup company has done surveys over many years of employee engagement, and typically has an engagement rating of you know 30 percent, uh, 15, 16 percent, or completely disengaged then the rest are you know mm. not not engaged really and so this is nothing new but the great resignation is again the latest strong signal that people don't like how organizations are led or managed so they're trying to find jobs with better management better work life flexibility work from home whatever better pay certainly respect for them as human beings but also respect for their ideas mm. um, they're not interested in discrimination and uh, you know this very uh, what do they call microaggressions and so forth, um, but you know they're going to end up finding mostly jobs in classically managed organizations, mm -hmm. and there'll be some kind of uh, um, you know impro small improvements made in those organizations. 
to accommodate the desires of uh, what do we got Gen Z and millennials and mm. whatever younger generations. <laughs> <laughs> um, but essentially, um, you know, the system of, um, of of profound privilege, which is the opposite of Deming's system of profound knowledge, uh, uh, will continue. So when I talk about classical management, I talk about classical management, the system of profound privilege, and the institution of leadership, and these things kind of coalesce together. Now, the system of profound knowledge that Deming proposed, uh, but didn't fully develop because he passed away, mm. is a human-based understanding of progress rooted in sensory perception. So as human, we have senses, we have sensory perceptions of things are right and wrong or need to be improved and so on. But system of profound privilege is a deity-based understanding of how to maintain the status quo and how to limit the pace and extent of progress based on preconceptions. Okay, so when I say deity-based, it's not a particularly, it's not a Western conception of <laughs> God or anything like that. It's just going way back in time when, you know, humans didn't understand what was life was about why are we here what's going on or whatever you know why is it raining or thunder or tornadoes you know there was various deities and so forth so this goes way back in time and um and the two system of profound knowledge system of profound privilege are really antagonistic to one another hmm. the system of profound privilege is entrenched and so it's of course easily going to defeat the system of profound knowledge and you know deming deming did great work and there's a big, big following for his work still today, but it's not relevant in terms of senior leaders of companies. Deming's work is irrelevant. Um, you know, as system of profound knowledge may be correct in, in its formulation and its, uh, you know, goals and aims and so forth, but it's essentially irrelevant because of the strength and uh, endurance or durability of the system of profound privilege. And as, as the name would imply, you know, the privilege people at the top have privileges that they, they wish to keep and maintain. And so the status quo is beneficial to them. Mm. Uh, yeah. Let's, let's talk about the status quo then. Um, it's obviously an amazing uh, band from the eighties. Nobody <laughs> yeah. admits listening to, but anyhow, um, it is, and seems to be an extremely, uh, powerful force within the organizations and, um, that sort of possesses a, a almost like a gravitational type of uh, mm -hmm. power over us that we don't seem to be able to escape. And I, I would guess that most uh, organizational changes that uh, in any way uh, or form sort of touch the system of uh, privilege, uh, profound pri privilege um, or the status quo, in other words, if it in any way touches or, or de tries to deviate from that, uh, eventually gets pulled back and, and um, yeah. Yeah, we end up back in, in the uh, square one. So, um, or maybe maybe at best we sort of get these uh, superficial type of uh, changes where we sort of get to scratch the surface and, and uh, maybe change some some tools or, or, or methods or whatever, but uh, nothing else actually uh right changes so what do you think what what kind of force is status quo and, and where does it get its power from in order to remain uh, immune so effectively yeah it is, it is extremely powerful it's like, it is like a gravity you're constantly pulled back towards it and part of sort of what we can say uh the gravity you could use a different word and say pragmatism 
Because hmm. pragmatism is always just uh, a compromise to say, well, we can't move too far forward because it's too hard. It takes too long. It costs too much. People won't do it, you know, whatever, some kind of excuse. And so you just sort of always, always bring it back very close to where you currently are. The status quo gets its power from people who ascend the hierarchy. Once they ascend the hierarchy, at some point, they start to recognize very deep moral and ethical obligations to their peers, current, past, and future peers, to sustain the hierarchy and the rights and privileges that the hierarchy, those at the top, have long possessed. So people in high places feel an obligation. They may not know it. Hmm. You know, and, and, and let's also say, you know, these aren't bad people. They don't, uh, you know, typically uh, there, there may be some, but I don't know, you know, for sure, but typically not have maybe an intention to do things this way. But this, the reality is, is they f- somehow feel a sense, an obligation to continue these longstanding traditions. And, and it is true that there is also a, um, uh, a, a deep rooted refusal to lose status. And and when we think of losing status, we tend to think of loss of status, and uh, uh, you know you're demoted, one or two levels, or you're thrown out. Or we tend to think of loss of status as something very large. Mm. But what I'm talking about here is there's a deep-rooted refusal to lose status in any amount, any small amount, for anything, um, even if doing so would improve the health and well-being of humanity or the company or its stakeholders. Mm. So just not interested in any loss of status in any amount for anything. So when something like Lean comes along or Agile or TQM or Deming System of Profound Knowledge, the folks at the top quickly recognize it as something that challenges their preconceptions. And again, I'm not making a value, a judgment on them, but this is just the facts of what happens. They, they recognize that this challenge is a preconception, and so their reaction is to dilute, bureaucratize, to confuse the situation with lean, agile, TQM, or mm-hmm. SOPK, um, at the result of which is to thwart progress and assure that classical management and its associated preconceptions and the long-stranding traditions and the rights and privileges and obligations of current and future leaders remain in full force. Mm. Yeah, maybe this is more about me uh, than anything else, but if I would imagine myself being in any sort of leadership position or anything like that, why would I want to get rid of these privileges? Like it, right. it gets yeah. very uh, problematic. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Because if, if any of us were in that position, most likely we would do the same. And there's a yeah. lot of peer pressure to do the same. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, what we're talking about to some degree here is the antagonism between um, uh, pragmatism and scientific thinking, because progressive mm-hmm. management is rooted in, you know, I mean, the evolution of, of progressive management comes through the discipline of mechanical engineering mm. and scientific thinking. If you look at, you know, scientific management, the people who created that uh, were uh, mechanical engineers, either degreed or or self-taught, but it came out of engineering profession. So the the history of progressive management has, with its way of thinking, you know, scientific thinking, cause and effect, uh, trial and error, 
and so on. And pragmatism uh, has is 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 run by preconceptions. You know, uh, it worked in the past, so let's do it now. Whereas scientific thinking would say, worked in the past. Why did it work in the past? Will it work now? Maybe not. Things are different. Let's try it and see. Oh, it didn't work. Okay, why? You know, so they're extremely antagonistic to one another. And you are correct. If we were in the, that's why it's hard to make a value, uh, make a a personal, you know, value-based judgment that, uh, you know, about people. You can't. You you really can't uh, do that. But what I think there is, what one can say is, you know, the world and people have changed a lot since the late Middle Ages. Mm. And uh, and so for that reason, we can say classical management has outlived its usefulness. <laughs> so um, there's a number of change models. There are a number of management books talk about changing and or organizational change and how how to get that done. And uh, people sell these processes and and models, um, but apparently there's very little to no uh, impact. One could say uh, based on your findings. So what do you think these change models don't really and you see and remain ob- oblivious to or, or uh, and what might be a, a more effective approach to get through or break through this immunity yeah i i think the first thing to realize is these change models come from people who are outside the system of profound privilege and so therefore you know the job of the system of profound privilege is to destroy or dilute or change the model so that they become essentially irrelevant mm. Um, the change models, they are oblivious to things like uh, the fact that most leaders don't want to change, that the leaders want to control change, that they want to limit the type and scope and pace of change, that change must be on their terms, on their timing, hmm. and that change must in no way result in any form of costs that impair their financial or other forms of wealth. And so when I say costs here, I mean, it could be a sort of a, an emotional cost. It's not just a, the financial cost and other forms of wealth. And the a wealth is not just money. Wealth is status. Wealth is a certain uh, viewpoint or, uh, you know, opinion or mindset and so on. Mm. So the change models are also oblivious to something very important here <laughs> that, that, uh, Uh, that leaders care little about what followers want. Um, (laughs) They they just don't care about what followers want. You know, we see with the great resignation that there is some uh, sort of bending of the rules. Okay, you can work from home a few days a week and so Mm -hmm. on. Uh, So, yeah, there's some change there and so forth. But essentially, at least historically, there's very little care about what followers want. Now, we can see because of COVID and work from home and things like that, that this is forcing some change to occur and this is this is you know typically what happens is the leaders don't care about what the workers in the company want unless the leaders are forced to recognize those wants and 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 make the needed changes but they're typically not really significant and so okay you can work from home but you're also going to be surveilled by the corporate IT system that's going to see if you're at your desk and typing on the keyboard and <laughs> having your phone calls and things like that um, you know, the, uh, the reality is if, you know, lead, it, it, you have sort of a, 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 a bilateral problem here, you know, if, if, if you, if you have to, basically you've got to force change, you know, I mean, it's, so how do you do it? You know, um, mm. 
what, what did we learn from Gandhi and Martin, Mahatma Gandhi and Martin Luther King? Nonviolent resistance, nonviolent protest. They, they taught us that. So if we want to see, you know, to your question of progressive management and, uh, you know, how do you move forward and so forth, if we want to do that, you probably need to do things like nonviolent resistance, nonviolent protest, mass membership in labor unions, uh, randomly timed company, co excuse me, countrywide work stoppages, <laughs> uh, random co company-wide work stoppages, uh, things like that. Um, and of course, you can't do any of that using the company's uh, information systems <laughs> to mm -hmm. coordinate. Of course. Uh, but, uh, but um, you know, the difficulty, however, with doing those kinds of things is that quite a large percentage of workers, you know, and people basically on the, you know, on the shop and office floor, your, um, your so-called hourly and salary people at the uh, lower levels of the organization, a large percentage of them, they align, they align themselves with the interest of, of the people at the top for aspirational reasons. So they, you know, people who are lower down in a social hierarchy hope to someday be like people in, you know, higher up in the hierarchy. And that's, you know, uh, understandable and so on. Um, and so they may be reluctant to participate in, you know, uh, labor unions or, or randomly timed uh, work stoppages and so forth, because and, and they would be forcing a change that might someday diminish uh, the status of where they want to be. <laughs> so it's not a fait accompli that uh, you know, people will willingly sign on to this and, and maybe um, in a not positive note, things who have to have to get worse before they get better in order to yeah. uh, pr produce the change. But I think it's pretty clear what we've seen from COVID and with the younger generations and with the internet uh, and and just changes in attitudes that have, have occurred, especially post baby boomer. So post my generation that business leaders are having to uh, being forced into changing. Um, but again, you know, the, 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 they're going to limit the type of change, the scope, the pace of change. It's got to be on their terms, on their timing. Can't result in, you know, costs that impair their, you know, wealth of various types and so forth. So um, it's going to be very measured. And if not, possibly reversed too. So some of the changes you see now in a year or two may, may be reversed, mm -hmm. such as new CEO comes into the company, says, I want everybody at work. Forget about working from home. That happened at Yahoo. I don't know if you remember, but Marissa Mayer yeah, right. yeah. became CEO and said, no, we're not doing that anymore. Everybody come back to work. Mm -hmm. That was, that was pre-COVID. So classical management, as you said, is a big, strong gravity you know, and pull, pull people, you know, <laughs> pulls them back into it. Sounds like we're going to need a, a major sort of possibly even an external forcing event to, to, uh, uh, make something, uh, drastic happen. I don't know. Well, I, we had a little experiment here with the initial of COVID in the initial days, initial months of COVID where, People weren't on the road and so forth, and pollution was way down, and so on and so on. And so, uh, you know, the Mother Earth may be providing the super strong signal <laughs> in the not too distant future that says you have to dramatically change how you do things. And this, of course, is where progressive management comes in because one of the one of the 
strength is it's a non-technological way to reduce externalities associated with economic activity. So by eliminating waste, unevenness, unreasonableness, we're able to have economic output, but without having the, uh, the you know, environmental mm. footprint and other externalities associated with it. And technology alone is not going to do that for us. Right. We'll do it to some, to some extent. We'll see. Do you think culture uh, plays a role in, in, uh, in this uh, clash or, or reluctance to change? Like, uh, um, I'm thinking like about the, the ultra-individualistic uh, Western yeah. uh, materialistic uh, thought. And uh, yeah, I guess the American dream being the most extreme example of, of, of that. Yeah. And, and then yeah. contrasting that with the... Uh, sort of uh, community uh, focus, spiritual, uh, uh, Asian or Eastern thought, I should say. Well, yeah, let me let me first say that um, I think it's important for everybody to realize that to greater or lesser extents, classical management survives partly by uh, gaslighting. I don't know if you're familiar with the term of gaslighting, but basically it's the leaders telling workers, you know, up is down when down is up and so <laughs> forth. It's disconfirming somebody's reality. Mm. And so we see this all the time in classical management where the, you know, the operator says there's a problem on the shop floor, but that problem goes up through the hierarchy. And of course, there's no problem. Once you know, mm. it goes a few levels up, there's no problem. Just keep doing what you're doing. Don't worry about it and so forth. And so that, you know, this, this confirmation of reality, and you see this in lean world all the time or, or where companies you know, people at lower levels are trying to push lean forward and, and, and the managers are, are, you know, disconfirming the reality of what those po- folks are trying mm-hmm. to do. That creates a huge societal mental health problem. And that's been increasing ever since the corporate raiders began their work in the late 1970s and, and the, followed by the financialization of business in the 2000s. So culture is becoming increasingly dysfunctional in ways that benefit people from the, at the top. And, and let me be clear, I'm not, you know, I'm not, I don't have, I'm not begrudging anybody being at the top, you know, particularly, I'm just trying to focus, uh, you know, highlight the, the fact of the matter here and that, um, uh, that any, any change of any type is resisted by, um, different groups of people at the bottom of society. And when, when change is resisted by people at, at the bottom of society, then that takes the pressure off of leaders to change. And then leaves the system of profound privilege intact. It leaves classical management intact. It leaves the institution of leadership intact. And this has become a worldwide phenomenon of sort of people going off into their different groups, you know. And 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 if you try to make a change, then one group seems like it gets an advantage, but it gets now battled by another group who doesn't like that you got an advantage and now I don't. Because people pervasively view things as a zero-sum world. So Material, materialistic Western thought certainly doesn't doesn't help matters, you know. While the the community first, the spiritual Eastern you know way of thinking, that's just difficult for people to grasp, you know, even if they've been raised in this system of profound privilege mm-hmm. culture, which is what most people have, to greater or lesser extents. In the Scandinavia, you know, it has SOPP, but maybe not with the intensity of uh, the United States, for example. But most people are raised in some type of, you know, hierarchical structure, uh, or everybody is really. But mm. the question is, is to what extent, uh, you know, privilege rules the day. Mm-hmm. To me, this problem <clears throat> seems to go 
extremely deep right into the core of being a human and and how mm-hmm. how we want to be with each other and how we want to interact with each other and how yeah. how we want our organizations to be and how we want our societies to be and do you see a silver lining here well you know i i'm i'm a firm believer that you can have you know privilege and wealth and hierarchy and so forth but in an egalitarian way you mm-hmm. know and in, and and in what's what's happened in the last you know 50 years every everybody kind of recognizes we're we're reliving the uh, the gilded age and so forth and um and that's causing some significant problems in society mm-hmm. so i think it is important to understand that um you know there there can be sort of social limits to these things when when a, a tipping point is reached then it becomes um a, a problematic for for everybody you mm-hmm. know in the hierarchy um and and so um Anyway, I think the books um you know they certainly expose a system of profound privilege and the institution of leadership in 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 fine detail. And it does paint a somewhat dark picture, but I also um I did propose some ways forward. You know, one mm. of the curious things is I get feedback sometimes that says there's no solutions in the triumph of classical management. There's a chapter there <laughs> with four four possible ways to dismantle classical <laughs> management there's four four solutions there uh and there is also a chapter on the um uh, imap you know the um a negotiate a, a way to reach a negotiated compromise between leaders favoring the system of profound privileges privilege and workers favoring the system of profound knowledge mm. but in writing these books you know I'm only one person mm. i you know i have some ideas but um but i'm not you know other people need to come into this picture and share their ideas uh, what i would like to see is that for a lot of people to read these books and not for the purpose of sales but for the purpose of crowdsourcing solutions to identify and try out mm. because it seems to me the direction we're headed is not uh, very good and uh we need a lot of ideas and we need them quickly mm. and uh and so um crowdsourcing ideas that to try out i think would be very useful we uh we talk in kaizen about try storming we don't talk about brainstorming and the reason why because when you do brainstorming people get together come up with si- some ideas and 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 reduce it to one idea to try mm. and when you do that people feel marginalized because their idea didn't get heard or the most influential person you know ha- put their idea forward and so forth um So we talk about try storming whereas people come up with ideas you try out every idea that everybody had mm. and see what happens. So I'd like to see the try storming a crowdsourced answer to the question questions of you know how do we want to uh, you know be led and manage in an organization how do we want to interact with each other um what do we want our work to be how do we want our society to be um Mm. I think those things need some um crowdsourced uh, uh, idea generation for for try storming. Mm. Um yeah, sounds like a good good path forward. If you go back to Deming again, uh, he he has this famous 95/5 rule that uh says that 95% of the variance in the performance of of a system is down to the system itself, not not the individuals in it. So um given that this uh, system is based on our own thinking it is man made after all so uh yeah. we should probably revisit and and take a bit of a critical look at the uh way we think 
before we even try and change anything else. So, and at the same time, the the management system in 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 our organizations is by definition uh, owned and governed by by the management, especially the top yeah. uh, management, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so this implies that the change would have to start from uh, from the select few uh, individuals uh, at the top. What issues do you, do you see with this sort of reasoning and and, and uh, is management truly or management thinking to be more precisely is it truly the constraint in in our organizations mm -hmm. yeah I, um yeah i it is i mean management to me management thinking is based on shared preconceptions that the managers gain through social learning as they rise up through the hierarchy of an organization and as they do that there is a validation of preconceptions as being good and right. And these preconceptions, of course, you, you become invested in because people that you work with, people that you admire and so forth, think this same way. So it becomes linked to emotions. Hmm. It, it gets attached to the so-called reptilian brain, you know, the oldest part of our brain, the brain stem, and then the basal ganglia or the amygdala gland is that the detects uh, threats and so forth and that makes it really really difficult to change one's thinking um, if you change your preconceptions that makes you different mm. and that leads you to become an outcast you're socially ostracized from your group and that leads to what a loss of status mm. and also a loss of opportunities and those opportunities, they're not all just financial. They could be meeting people, certain people that you would never meet otherwise, or go places that you never met or go before, or have certain kinds of food and drink that you'd never have before, or whatever. There's many types of opportunities that get lost. Hmm. So that means that change amongst a few individuals in a management team is unlikely. Doesn't mean it's impossible. Hmm. It just means it's unlikely. Hmm. And, uh, and, and, you know, we see the truth of this borne out, uh, uh, um, you know, in front of our eyes empirically uh, in, in the, the lack of desire for leaders to accept or understand or want to adopt a progressive management. So you have a situation where over the centuries, the last 350 years or so, the what I call the gate the gatekeepers, the gatekeeping participants in classical management, they've made adjustments to their way of thinking and operating in a way of doing things such that leaders, workers, society, they become trapped in it. And so classical management, the system of profound privilege, the institutional leadership, they're built on preconceptions that produce the constraint which compels top leaders to not veer too far away from the status quo. And therefore, it doesn't satisfy the wants and needs of, of, of people, which would be the workers and society in general. It may satisfy the wants and needs of customers or investors, but not you know, mm. employees or society generally. Mm. You've mentioned it a number of times that we sort of get conditioned uh, early on uh, into this yeah. sort of thinking, right? So 
uh, all these things, lean or uh, ethereal constraints and all, all these things, they, they are built on a set of different, all kinds of uh, assumptions that are very different from, from the ones that we currently use, if you will, and uh, might be even in, in complete opposition to, to the current assumptions. So I think we this starts already like at, in our childhoods and then through the whole education system and, and, yeah. and so on. So it, it obviously it's very uh, deeply rooted do, do you have any ideas of what the first steps might look like if we were to change these or start changing these assumptions whether it is individually or or co collectively in in some uh, group or or organization yeah um I, there is a general view out there that you know if we need to educate people in lean at you know in grade school and in uh, high school and college and so forth and education is widely perceived as a you know as the solution but um, it it may be a, a good solution but certainly not by itself um, I'm I'm skeptical because most people learn uh, excuse me use only a small fraction of what they learn in school mm. and once once um, they graduate, they don't put much effort into learning uh, new things. And by that, I mean self-study. Um, much more powerful learning comes uh, in, in, in more, more in social environments, such as from your parents or your bosses at work. And, you know, students often say, I learn more from my fellow students in class than I learned from the professor. So this sort of hierarchy in education where the teacher or professor is, you know, teaching, has a limited impact on learning, probably because of the nature of the hierarchy <laughs> and, 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 and grades, you know, passing judgment and right. things like that. So that kind of ruins learning for a lot of, for most people. Um, and so, um, you know, parents, bosses at work, peer group, these are the greatest teachers and influencers. Mm. Now, if people were encouraged to be curious and not get penalized for failing, they were allowed to think and question things you know they would discover that their assumptions need to change their preconceptions are you know outdated or, or wrong um, the problem is is parents and bosses and peers are can also be anchored in uh, traditions or preconceptions that 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 cut off any any questioning of assumptions yeah so i don't i don't know what the first steps would be you know collectively to deal with this problem but i know individually that people can take action to, you know, develop themselves, grow their minds. They can, and, 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 and as a result, make changes that are within their span of control. Um, one of the things we, we learned from uh, our, our Kaizen teachers was that we have to go back to learn how to think like a five-year-old, mm, yeah. uh, think like a seven-year-old. Uh, because that way we, we have a, you know, no preconceptions. We look at things, um, you know, blankly. We look at things without, um, uh, what's the word? I'm, well, without preconceptions and so forth. Mm -hmm. So it enables us to see things fresh mm -hmm. and we can go about solving the problems that we face differently. So if we can, throughout our lives, learn to think like five-year-olds and be curious and ask why, individually, we would move forward. Um, and, you know, if, if people in an organization were to do this, there is some, you know, collective uh, uh, aspect to that, that, that that would work well there, too. 
in terms of society, of course, that's a much bigger mm. problem how you do that. But I think one interesting thing that you talked about in, in the beginning of the interview was the um, things you said about uh, scientific management and, and uh, Taylor. Um, so, so let's uh, set the record straight once and for all here, um, because to me it seems that Taylor is still sort of perceived as the source of all evil uh, in this world and um, tends to have a very bad uh, reputation still to this day. So like you said, he was the, one, of, one of the first to actually start innovating new management systems, steering the uh, development uh, away from, from the classical management and towards more scientific approaches. So is this just a matter of, of these critics being, being lazy or... or Am, am I way out of line here, or how do you see it as as a management? I, I mean, you know, in lean world, there are certain people who just want to hang, uh, 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 you know, Frederick Taylor for all the problems of why lean isn't advancing forward. And this is coming from people who espouse respect for people and no blame. You know, <laughs> so it doesn't, you know, it's ridiculous. I mean, it's um, it it relates to the fact that they're they're trying to advance lean in an unscientific way they're not even following their own pdca advice for moving lean forward anyway it's a it's a matter of critics being lazy mm. is what it is you know lean world they, they some people want to deny rewrite distort the history of uh the the history of progressive management to distance lean from scientific management from it from the, its origins in scientific management I don't know why I'm going to say presumably, I don't know for sure because they don't talk to me, presumably for the purpose <laughs> of hoping to expand the appeal of lean. I mean, why else would you trash Frederick Taylor to put some distance between that and yeah. lean? You know, why would you do that? I don't know. They don't talk to me, presumably to increase the sale of lean goods and services. I don't know for sure. They don't talk to me. <laughs> But either way, you know, Identifying Taylor as a source of management evil is inaccurate, untruthful. You know, it's just mm -hmm. it's misleading the people uh, that you know. It's, it's misleading the followers of the of the lean movement. It's disrespecting the followers of the lean movement. So, in this way, you know, it's noteworthy that the lean promoters who do this or the people who do this are no different in terms of the gaslighting that they, that they do that people do in classical management. I mean, they're following the same playbook as classical management here. Interesting. So, which to your point, yeah, which to your point goes to the fact that, the, you know, the gravity of uh, how, how, you know, classical status quo and classical management is like a gravitational force. Right. And they're, they're succumbing to pragmatism, you know, because they don't have a good argument of, uh, 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 you know, a fact-based argument, a scientific way to advance lean management. So they're resorting to a pragmatic solution here, which is to just say, it's Fred Taylor's fault. He's dead. Let's blame the dead guy. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's stupid. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, one last question before I uh, let you get to your uh, day. We talked about uh, a little bit about hierarchies and, um, To me, they seem to be everywhere in, in nature and um, whether it is out there, so to say, in, in, uh, in the nature or within uh, the, uh, our organizations and, and whatever we as humans do, are hierarchies by definition uh, evil? Uh, and if not, why is that? And um, 
What, what does a healthy hierarchy look like in, in a modern management system? Yeah. Well, there is one. yeah. So uh, hierarchies, wealth, privilege, these are not intrinsically bad. Hmm. Um, but in the realm of human of hierarchies, excuse me, in the human realm of hierarchies, um, we have a little bit of a, a problem because um, the hierarchies get turned in a way to benefit the few to the detriment of the many. So again, it's, hierarchies are not intrinsically bad, hmm. but they can be turned into a, a bad direction. And we look at hierarchies in nature, which are harmonious. Hmm. Now, yes, there's there's you know fighting for mates in in uh, uh, you know the animal kingdom and so forth, but that's for perpetuation of the species. So for a, a harmonious uh, you know goal. But human hierarchies tend towards disharmony. Again, it's not intrinsically bad, but tends towards disharmony. Why does this happen? Well, hierarchies lead to a social status. A social status leads to me feeling important. Hmm. Me feeling important means I don't want to deal with you because you're lower down. I'm not not you, UC, but you know what I mean. Some, mm. I don't want to deal with somebody down here because they're lower in the hierarchy. So that leads to social separation. And when I'm socially separated from somebody, I'm I, I'm either close-minded or I'm in my own bubble, you know. And that means now I have biases, and that means when I have problems, that I analyze them with uh, very limited information. Made made up of my close-mindedness and biases, and then those decisions are are you know are end up being bad, and mm. and we don't make progress, and you know people get get unhappy. So I would think a, a healthy hierarchy in a modern management system is going to be one where uh, leaders understand their role is to serve others rather than to serve themselves. And this, by the way, was prior to the late Middle Ages the normal way of thinking to you know, serve others rather than serve yourself. So to be other regarding rather than self-regarding mm. um, to the people who are stakeholders. And in, in an organization, the stakeholders are going to be you know, employees, suppliers, customers, the investors, the community, and usually, and even competitors, because sometimes you know, organizations have some um, joint ventures with competitors and so forth. So, but this line of thinking you know, the difficulty is it doesn't make sense to people who understand the system of profound privilege. You know, they, they don't they don't understand this idea of, of being other regarding rather than self-regarding. And it's it's basically, um, you know, the, the, the dysfunction that can occur when, um, you know, hierarchies, wealth and privilege go go into go past some tipping point. Mm. What is that tipping point? hard to know exactly where it is but it seems that we have uh, uh, at least uh, the way we have gone past it I think you know generally in most countries and mm. some some years ago a couple of decades ago probably right well I think uh, this makes for an excellent place to stop for for this time at least it has been an absolute pleasure for for me at least and uh, thank you so much for being so generous with your time Bob well, it's been my pleasure. Thank you for uh, inviting me on your show. I, I appreciate it. I really uh, love the questions that you pose. Really great questions. Thank you. That's it, folks, for this time. 
I hope you found that interesting and worthy of your time. If you like this sort of stuff, why not subscribe to the podcast? Episodes will be published rather irregularly, but I hope quantity doesn't necessarily rule over quality here. I would appreciate any sort of feedback on the episode and the podcast in general, so feel free to send me some feedback on scrapingtoasts.com or on social media. Until next time, take it easy.